Welcome. You are listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue Podcast, and this is Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove. While it's better to hear it live, this is the place to catch the latest sermon, conversation, and select program. If you like what you're hearing or want to learn more about our community, check out PASYN.org. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to get a notification for our next episode. Enjoy and see you in shul. Shabbat shalom. Hine matovum and I am. How good is this? The, uh, so we're here tonight to talk a little bit uh, about things we shouldn't take for granted, I guess, and that's the theme. Uh, one of which is uh, American democracy. We're three years away from marking and celebrating the Declaration of Independence. To, uh, 250 years, it will be in three years. The greatest experiment in many ways in political organization in, in history. And it's a good time to take stock because, again, the lessons of the last few years is uh, nothing is baked into the cake. And that is what we've learned. As you heard from uh, the introduction, I'm a foreign policy guy. I've been working on foreign policy for uh, a long time. And increasingly, the thing that worries me most is us. And it's our ability to maintain sufficient unity to deal with our domestic challenges. Uh, and it's absent that, these challenges will overwhelm us. They will distract us. Worse than gridlock, which is bad enough, we could also see ourselves descending into, into violence. And if that happens, not only we will, will we not be anything remotely resembling a shining city on a hill that others will want to resemble, but our allies will question, those who depend on us, depend on us will question that dependence. Our foes will see, will, 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 will see opportunity. And what matters so much here, and this is me, the foreign policy guy, is that the United States is not just any other country. And this is not bragging. This is not me saying we're the indispensable country. But it is a fact of life, if you think about it. The last 75 or so years since the American entry into World War II through today has, I would argue, been the most extraordinary run in modern history. This has been the, uh, the golden age. There has not been great power conflict since the end of World War II. Cold War stayed cold. It ended on terms that were remarkably supportive of our, of our interests. Over these years, we've not only seen you know, great power, uh, again, an absence of war, we've seen remarkable improvement in wealth, a remarkable extension in lifespans. We have seen democracy take root in, in much of the world. The colonial era uh, ended not, only, not always peacefully, but it ended. It's been a remarkable run, and it just didn't happen. The lesson of, good, of history is that, one, good things are, uh, never just happen. Indeed, good things are not the default option of history. Uh, good things happened over the last three quarters of a century in no small part, not because the United States acted alone, but because the United States acted. And we often took the lead in the world, and we forged coalitions and alliances, built institutions to deal with problems and challenges. Obviously, we made all sorts of mistakes. We weren't flawless. But all in all, it was a pretty impressive record. But my concern is now that we may no longer be in a position to do that, again, because of domestic division. And if we can't act in the world, 
the world will get increasingly ugly. And what happens out there doesn't stay there. It will find its way to get here. That's one of the realities of globalization. Nothing stays local for long. But putting aside the international consequences of our division, think about the domestic, if we can't get it right. Uh, again, we've had a taste of it, our inability to deal with all sorts of challenges from crime. We now have declining average lifespans in the United States. More than 100,000 people are dying every year from drug abuse. We have uh, fantastic problems at the, uh, at the borders. We're gonna have a major question in a few months about whether we can deal with uh, our debt and in a responsible uh, way, and nothing is, nothing is preordained. Nothing is, is necessarily going to, to turn out right. Lots of reasons how we uh, got to this point. And you know, what led me to, to write this book is my concern that we weren't on a trajectory that could, uh, ensure, we, that could ensure success, that it could ensure that this experiment would go on for another 250 years or even another 25 years. Don't mean to be melodramatic, but I think January 6th was a taste of what could go off the rails. And January 6th was an awfully close run thing. We came extraordinarily close to seeing an election not, not seen through, having competing slates of electors, and who knows what would have happened if either the vice president had refused to perform his responsibilities, or if several of the so-called secretaries of state in various states around the country had refused to uh, legitimize uh, the electors who the voters had elected. Uh, I can't stand here with confidence and say what would have happened or would, would, would not have happened. So the lesson I take is not to take American for democracy for granted. Uh, I think American democracy is, is worth keeping. So what I decided to do then was uh, write a book about why I th you know, how American democracy came to be, why I thought it was uh, worth keeping, why we're in the trouble we're in, lots of reasons. We can talk about them from the media landscape. We've gone from an era of uh, broadcasting to narrowcasting, the way we fund our politics is a problem. Any number of, of reasons explain why we are, uh, where we are, and to think about what we need to do. And I came up with an idea that again surprised me. You think about democracy, and one of the first words that comes to mind is rights, freedom, and that's important. It obviously is essential. It's what distinguishes democracy. Uh, the first 10 amendments to the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, were central. Uh, the Bill of Rights, by the way, were brought about because several states refused to ratify the proposed Constitution. Constitution was the second Constitution of the United States. The first, the Articles of Confederation, were essentially feckless. And, but several states said, we've just thrown off a tyranny. We can't create a tyranny here at home. So the, their condition for ratifying the proposed Constitution was to pass this Bill of Rights that gave protections, essentially uh, put limits on what uh, government could do. Didn't put limits on what states could do, but really what the federal government uh, could do. And obviously it didn't do away with slavery and other forms of uh, discrimination and, and, and so forth. Uh, you know, Lincoln at one point described, uh, in his, I think it was at Gettysburg, described America's pursuit to close the gap between the Declaration of Independence and all of its principles and the reality. He called it the unfinished work of America. And I think all of us would agree that the work remains unfinished. My argument is, though, that even if the work were finished, that even then American democracy would not be on firm footing. 
I mean, think about it. You have the right of a, a woman's right to choose versus the rights of the unborn. Someone would say, see his or her rights under the Second Amendment to bear arms versus a right of public safety. Someone's right not to wear a mask or, vac or get vaccinated, someone else's right to health. How do, you, how do you deal with that? How do you balance that? Uh, Justice Stephen Breyer, until recently on the Supreme Court, said the toughest cases they get are not cases that, that balance right and wrong, but are, thank you, are, but deal with right and right. Uh, and how do, you, how do you deal with those situations? Who decides? And the problem is if it become, rights become absolute, there's no grounds for compromise, and then one of two things follow. Either you have gridlock, because there's no give, or if, there's no, if one side gets all and the other side gets nothing, the side that gets nothing basically says, I no longer have a stake in this system. I'm prepared to use violence to overthrow it. So we basically leave the path of reform and we move towards the path of revolution. And that is uh, something I never thought I would have to wake up and worry about, much less write a book about. But now I've decided that uh, it's all too real of a possibility. So what I decided to do was write a, a book, not simply about rights, but a book about obligations, obligations from individual to individual between us, among us, and obligations from in, between individuals and the government and their, their country. Uh, the rabbi uh, helped me along the way, introduced me to Max Arst, the uh, Jewish educator and philosopher, about what, 100 years ago, 75 years ago? Yeah, 7,500 years ago. And this whole idea that you know, to have a society uh, obviously without rights would be you know, something that would lack dignity, lack freedom, let, let, wouldn't allow for human potential. But to have a society without obligations or responsibilities would be anarchy. And that what you need in a society is a, is a balance between the two. So I, I essentially set out to think about what would be the, the way of balancing it? And I came up with these, coincidentally, in a synagogue, 10 obligations. Nine or 11 didn't quite feel, uh, it didn't resonate with me. Uh, decided to go with 10. It starts from the most basic, which again is very close to Judaism, of uh, being informed. Jefferson, Jefferson's notion that citizen, citizenship had to be based on a foundation of being informed which is actually tougher than you would think in an age in which we're drowning in information. Indeed, because we're drowning in information and misinformation, getting informed is actually more difficult than ever. One of the most interesting movements in America now is the information literacy movement. A neighboring state, some of you may have been there, called New Jersey, just passed a law, Governor Murphy signed into law, requiring that New Jersey public schools teach information literacy. The whole idea is to teach young people to become critical consumers of information, how to distinguish between uh, facts and things masquerading as them. Obviously, we want to have involvement. Uh, not, you, first, you want to have people who inform, but then we want to have uh, involvement. Uh, it's interesting, Ronald Reagan didn't just call for patriotism. He called for informed patriotism. He wanted people to get involved to protect the country, but on a basis of, uh, of, of information which I think is uh, critical. I go through lots of other things about civility, um, about compromise. Indeed, a lot of the ideas I put forward have a, an awful lot of resonance in scripture, Old and New Testament alike. One of the things I came away from is that religious authorities have a big responsibility. Who better to preach the illegitimacy of violence in pursuit of political ends? Who better 
to preach the importance of civility, who better to uh, preach about the importance to be prepared to compromise. Uh, over 100 million Americans every week uh, experience, not endure, a sermon. Uh, <laughs> and uh, cheap shot, I apologize. Uh, but, the, but the content of those becomes uh, really uh, important. The other area which I took a lot of uh, guidance from Judaism, and Rabbi Cosgrove alluded to it, is uh, Passover. Think about it. Jews, for much of our existence, we've been, uh, often haven't had access to our holy places. And one of the ways we survived was having uh, what a friend of mine, Leon Wieseltier, once described as portable Judaism, mobile Judaism. We could practice Judaism everywhere at a, at a time like um, Passover. And the whole idea of the Haggadah, the telling, is to tell the story, to, to tell the narrative. We don't assume that the Jewish story, that anyone is born with it. And it's the, the responsibility, Lador Lador, to teach that story, to teach that narrative, to protect it, and to institutionalize it from generation to generation. And it's worked. Jews have survived despite the Holocaust, despite persecution, despite diaspora. It has essentially worked. Well, this is a country, the United States, that is founded on what? We're founded on ideas. We're not founded on gender or race or religion or heredity or, or monarchy. We're founded on an idea. And the ideas are in the Declaration. We haven't always lived up to them. I understand that. But those are still our ideals. Uh, but our, our, what we've got to do, because we're the most heterogeneous democracy in the world, unlike Japan, where 99% of the people are, are, are similar, we're, we're a country of immigrants. So we've got to come up with ideas that bind us, bind us together. So we've got to do a better job of telling our story, which is why, for me, I think it's the ninth of the obligations is the teaching of civics. More than anything else, what motivated me to write this book is right now you can graduate from about 98%, 95% of our colleges and universities. And if you navigate your course requirements with a degree of creativity, you will never experience a course in civics. You can graduate from most of the high schools in this country and either have no civics or a minimal amount of it. So why do we think the ideas that are central to democracy will be passed on if we don't make it a conscious point to teach civics and require that civics be studied in our schools? Uh, so for me, it's in some ways one of the most important of the, uh, of the obligations. And last is the obligation of putting country before person or party. It's uh, interesting, uh, JFK and Profiles and Courage wrote a book about just that. He wrote about eight senators. Some of them, interestingly enough, were, were people who were lauded for compromising when, when compromise was wildly controversial. And some of those were lauded for not compromising when that stood up for principle. And obviously, you've got to be able to distinguish between the uh, two. But I think in recent years, again, I mean, I thought what Liz Cheney did on the January 6th Commission was a pretty good modern-day example of her profile and coverage. She paid for it, lost her primary race. Some of the, again, some of the secretaries of state around the country who stood up to pressures and said, look, the other party won this fair and square. That's my job. I've got to stand up for, for what is right. That comes before party. They paid enormous price. They came under tremendous pressures, often death threats. 
but they, they, they did the right thing. And what we want to do is create a country again where national service, where serving the country is part of the experience of, of, of most uh, Americans, and where this idea is uh, of obligation to put the country before person or party. None of this will just happen. Uh, as, as, as much as I'd like to think the book is pretty good, uh, mildly influential or persuasive, uh, it ain't just going to work that way. As I said, it's going to take religious leaders doing their part. It's going to take business leaders giving their employees time to vote. Say, take four, four hours off on election day to go, or the whole day off to work at the polls or vote. And by the way, we're not going to contribute any of this company's funds to candidates who are election deniers or advocate for violence. And by the way, we're not going to advertise on media that allow that to happen on that media. So corporations have, a, have an, a, an important role to play. Obviously, schools have an important role to play. I think parents have an important role to play in what they, uh, their own political activism, what they ask of the schools they send their kids to, uh, and also what they talk about at the dinner table. Turns out it's uh, one of the more important educational venues in our country is what happens in the home, or could happen in the home uh, every day. So if there's going to be an answer to what ails us, it's going to come, if you will, from the bottom up. It's not going to be delivered. Again, very consistent with the Parsha this week. Uh, didn't realize that before coming tonight. It's one of the many reasons to come to shul. Uh, you never know what you uh, learn. But the answer is not from a single figure. The answer is from the collective. It's from the community. It's, it's basically all of us, each of us, stepping up to, uh, to, to accept and, and practice our, our obligations. Uh, you know, the good news is I think the possibility is there for this country. The bad news is it's, uh, it's not preordained that it's going to work. So the reason I wrote this, and I may not have big parts of it right, I'm more than prepared to the, you know, almost like that movie with Mel Brooks coming back down from the mountain where he drops one of the tablets. Uh, <laughs> Might be some of my obligations are wrong. Might be some others I should have put in there. That's great. That's great. Let's have the conversation. Uh, let's have the conversation about how it is we define citizenship in our age, and then how is it do we how to promote it? Because you know I, the book's been out for about a month or five weeks. What struck me is um, the reception it's getting. How many people are at events or writing emails or letters? People know there's something wrong out there. People know there's something amiss. We've gone off the rails somehow. And people, though, desperately want to figure out a way to getting back on track, if I can slightly switch the metaphors. And so I don't pretend to have all the answers, but I want to have that conversation in this country. And I'm glad to have that conversation tonight. Dr. Haas, it's good to see you. Mazel tov on the book, and thank you so much for your presentation. Um, you know, I have to say, we are normally sitting like this uh, on Yom Kippur afternoon, so I want to do something I've dreamt about for all these years. L'chaim, <laughs> everyone. So... Yeah, so it's um, nice to talk to you on a full stomach, yeah, not on a full stomach. stomach. Yeah. So... Uh, we'll go for a few minutes, we'll have a back and forth here, and then we'll open it up to questions. Uh, I'll begin by focusing on the book, but it's a good thing 
that um, the world is so quiet right now. I, I can't promise you that my congregants, you are one of them, uh, won't have questions, not on the book as well. But let's start with the book. Uh, you, you began your, your remarks this evening by pointing out from the, the anniversary of the Declaration, the founding documents to January 6th, that we've gone from a country of, of ask not, you know, as, as one has been said, to mask not, right? And, and I'm wondering, um, in this arc, in this trajectory, is there a tipping point, uh, or, or, or was January 6th what prompted uh, this sort of change in mindset, or did it happen before that, and that was just sort of symptomatic of, of, of something? Uh, when, when, how did this downward trajectory uh, happen? No, I think January 6th was much more a reflection than a driving moment. I think it, it brought into stark relief just the degree to which uh, the term of art in the, the field I work in is backsliding, how much democratic backsliding, and we see it in Mexico with the assault on the Electoral Commission. We've seen it in Turkey for years with the imprisonment of uh, journalists. We see it in, in India, what's going on there. Brazil impressively got through. So what's happening here isn't unique. But no, there's been a gradual erosion of the fabric of democracy around the world. In, in this country, it's everything from the, the media landscape has changed. We stopped teaching civics in many cases in our schools. The way we fund our politics and allow of our politics to be funded has weakened uh, parties so they can't play in any way a, uh, a, a moderating role. We've, we've grown a lot. When the country was founded, we were 3 million people. We're now 333 million people. And all I'd say is a generous description would be, in some ways, our institutions haven't quite kept up, uh, to, put it, to put it generously. So I think there's not a, a single moment or a tipping point. I just think the January 6th brought into a stark relief just how far things had descended. And I think you know, the question is, Whenever you have a crisis in any political system, democratic or not, the, you know, there's that old line, never let a crisis go to waste. And I think the question is whether we let this crisis go to waste or whether we, whether we really use it. Okay. Thank you. Um, I love the book. I thought it was a very Jewish book, uh, not because I'm a rabbi and not just because you referenced the Passover Seder and Rabbi Max Arts. Uh, but also because each one of your categories, and I'm not going to do this with each and every one, I could uh, actually give you a rabbinic category um, for that obligation uh, that you outline, whether it's civility, whether it's valuing norms, whether it's the art of compromise. Uh, these are all uh, uh, principles that are indigenous to the Jewish tradition. So as your rabbi, Yashar Koach, uh, <laughs> that's great. So let's just uh, go through a couple of them. Uh, uh, compromise, you, you alluded to, to Liz Cheney and uh, the um, question of when, you know, on the one hand, We've lost the ability to countenance ideas that differ from our own and, 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 and a fine middle ground. On the other hand, domestically, uh, Liz Cheney, but also, well, that's actually different. That's actually more of a principled stand. Um, but you, you, you use the example in a foreign policy context of um, President Zelensky, that his refusal to 
um, uh, seed territory was actually a principled stand whereby the refusal to compromise is um, seen as a, a positive attribute. So I'm wondering, um, this, this question of seeing compromise sure. and, uh, or the refusal. It's, it's a tough question to answer because compromise may be the right thing, it may not be. Uh, sometimes the right thing to do is to stand firm. Uh, sometimes it's not. A lot of it is quite pragmatic. You've got to look around and think hard about the likely costs and benefits and consequences of standing firm versus the likely consequences of, of compromising. So I'm, I'm pretty pragmatic on it. So I think, the, you know, as a general rule, I kind of believe first order principles ought not to be compromised, but anything that's less than that can be, and you ought to be willing to compromise to get closer to what it is you want. All or nothing positions tend to lead to nothing. And even in Ukraine, I would argue, President Zelensky, who's had an uncompromising stance, will uh, somewhere down the road be forced to compromise. Certainly on means, not necessarily on ends. He may, for example, refuse to compromise on the principle of the, of the, that Ukraine owns all of the territory it was given at the time of independence in 1991. He may be willing to accept interim outcomes where it doesn't get that territory in order to stop the war, but it uses other tools, diplomacy and sanctions, to get to that point that he wants. It may take a generation to get there. And he may, again, have to make that kind of uh, consideration. So I think you know, the founding of Israel, the, the terms which the UN offered to Israel were far less than Ben-Gurion and the Zionists wanted. But they, they, in the half a loaf is better than none, they, they, they took it. I'd actually say the Palestinians have paid a real price for an unwillingness to compromise at times. And an unwillingness to compromise has left less and less in the potential area of what they could garner from um, negotiations. My, my view is simply you've got to constantly ask yourself, what are the, uh, what's the alternative? And by the way, the good news is in recent, the last few months, we've had two good examples, imperfect, but two examples of compromise. One was on the limited gun safety legislation, where Republicans and Democrats, again, quite limited, but something. The other was on an obscure piece of law that was passed in, uh, I think it was 1877, the Electoral Count Act, which sets forth the mechanics by which we conduct a presidential election. And what we saw a couple of years ago is that the 1877 law was woefully inadequate, and Republicans and Democrats came together very quietly during the lame duck session late last year, and much improved and much strengthened the law. So compromise is, uh, no, it's rare, but not, uh, not extinct. Thank you. Um, obligation number four is the importance of civility. And I was intrigued, and there was an element I was sort of trying to read the soul of my congregant here, of you dropping your guard, and we just heard the announcement of your successor being named at uh, Let me give you this, this one. This will, this will help you. Oh, this, oh, wow, look. Uh, these are the 10 <laughs> obligations right here. Um, you had an aside in there, Dr. Haas, about uh, cancel culture. And you really uh, took cancel culture to task as an expression of the incivility of the age. And I'm just wondering if you could uh, share with the community and expand on that as 
as, as to why that is? Look, uh, just more broadly on civility. If one is uncivil towards someone, it doesn't increase the chances you will bring that person around to your side of thinking. But on a very pragmatic level, you're, it's, so right now, uh, it's a Friday. And if, uh, if I were to be uncivil towards the rabbi, uh, it'd be wrong for many reasons. But if, but if we disagreed on some issue tonight, we'd probably have to work on some other issue tomorrow or the day after. So a lack of civility is relationship wrecking. But the reality is, since we're all members of a community, whether it's a congregation or a society, we can't afford that. And we have to have an understanding that we're never going to agree on everything. But we have to preserve the possibility of cooperation on tomorrow's issue, even if we can't cooperate on today's issue. So it's actually, civility is not something you just do for the other person. You do it as a way of protecting your own long-term self-interest. Uh, and it's also a little bit of the golden rule. It's not very much fun to be on the receiving end of incivility. Uh, and again, it makes uh, it all that much more difficult to, to compromise or to get, uh, to get anything done. Yeah, cancel culture, um, I actually see it as inconsistent with, with rights, with you know, the basic rights under the, the, the First uh, Amendment. If you have to shut somebody down, it just seems to me, um, I, I don't have a lot of tolerance for that. My own view is uh, allow, allow arguments to be put out there. If they're as bad as you think they are, they will sink under their own uh, weight. You know, sunlight is the great disinfectant. Uh, as uh, Justice, Brandeis, uh, Justice Brandeis said, I think it's particularly dangerous to the culture of uh, campuses where they're meant to be places where ideas are allowed to be trotted out, where people can explore and experiment. So I find the, the intellectual intolerance on a lot of our campuses a really worrisome, uh, a really worrisome introduction or development in, in, a, in American society. And a lot of my friends who are teaching or professors notice uh, in the what's said in classrooms has shrunk because more and more people are worried about the social media and other consequences of voicing certain opinions in the classroom and how essentially, I guess, in, in 200 years ago, we would have said they would have been shunned. And there's a little bit of modern shunning uh, going on. So I actually feel pretty strongly that there's got to be, uh, if people themselves, I wish people you know, could bring themselves to a more tolerant point. But if they can't, then I think those who run these institutions have a responsibility to create certain ground rules. And the University of Chicago and some others have done that. But most university leaders, I think, have, uh, have abdicated their responsibility. Um, the chapter um, on valuing norms was a very Jewish one. Uh, there is um, a concept in Jewish law that there is deen, there is the law, and then there is lifnim mishurat ha-deen, that which is beyond the law. Um, and I'm wondering, so it, it, it seems that it's not enough just to be a law-abiding uh, society. What are the norms that you, you see at risk, and why yeah. is this one of the ten? I figured two or three Jewish references were probably about as much as I could get away with uh, <laughs> in terms of uh, potential readership. Look, uh, law, I mean, think about, let me give you an analogy, which is the tax code. 
what you have under tax law is um, you, know, you, you can't do the following 20 things. They don't qualify as deductions. And the reasons that lawyers and accountants in that field do as well as they do, because they can always find you know, 21. They can find the other thing that's not explicitly ruled out. And there's just lots of things you can anticipate. Take, one, take the most basic norm of American democracy. I think the greatest norm of American democracy, which is uh, when you lose an election, you concede and you congratulate your opponent, you wish your opponent well, and at the presidential level, you get in that limo, you drive down Pennsylvania Avenue, you go to the steps of the Capitol, and you stand there together, and you watch the, you listen to the inaugural, watch the person take the oath of office, and so forth. It's the peaceful transfer of power. And it's so stunningly remarkable, because you think about much of history and much of the world, that doesn't exist. There's no legitimate form of political transfers of power. It is one of the hallmarks of a functioning doctor. I never expected it would ever be questioned. It was questioned, obviously, when uh, Donald Trump lost to, uh, to, to Joe Biden. And I think it's, it's terrible for our image in the world, but it's also terrible uh, for us. Because again, we want whoever lost to acknowledge the legitimacy of the person they lost to, and that you can disagree on the policy, but it should not preclude accepting their legitimacy, their leadership, and the potential of working together. So I don't think American democracy can work without that norm. There's other norms that I think are very useful about uh, transparency uh, and what people do. And but look, if you think about it, we don't have a direct democracy. We have a, what's called a representative democracy. So I think norms turn out to be really important in, in building trust for, uh, for the system and for those who enjoy special re responsibility. And again, you can't anticipate everything. You can't put lock everything into legislation or law. So norms are about attitudes. They're about behaviors. They're, look, no one forces anybody to give money to charity. But we still think it's the right thing to do. That's a norm. So there's lots of behaviors in life we think are admirable, we think ought to be modeled, but there's a, you can't mandate them. Uh, national service is something, uh, is a form of a norm. I would want to see incentivized. I would want to see it carried out. I don't believe it can or should be mandatory. Be a lot of resistance to that. Okay, so how do we create a norm that you get, it's, it's, you, we all need to give something back? That's the right and proper thing uh, to do. That's, that's why norms are so valuable. They, they're not alternatives to the law, but they're complements, and they, they add something to it. Thank you. All right, I'm going to ask one more question, and then we're going to open it up, but I'm not going to ask you a question. We're going to play a game, and if this game goes south, you'll all know because <laughs> Dr. Haas will refuse to be our Yom Kippur speaker next year. <laughs> so, um, let's play Stump Dr. Haas. Oh, all right, so... <laughs> you <be> um, <laughs> <laughs> Who are the two New York senators? This is, no, he is behind this. Um, who knows, Rachel, who are the two New York senators? All right, Schumer and Gillibrand, right or wrong? Okay, right, okay. Um, who is the governor of New York? And can I, correct, who, who's that next to you, uh, uh, Rachel? Um, yes, I can't, my, my contacts are terrible. Hochul, Did, is that what you said? Right or wrong? Okay. Who is 
Um, the mayor of New York. <laughs> Eric, Adams. Eric Adams, right or wrong? I guess. Okay. <laughs> All right, let's ratchet up the heat right here. Who is the um, congressperson of District 12, our district? No, you, you work here, come on. All right. Yes, from a teenager. No, Rachel, you can't do all of them. Uh, but, okay, so Nadler, okay, right or wrong? All right. Um, who is um, the DA? Alvin Bragg, right or wrong? Okay, who is the, um, the council uh, member for this district, the fourth? Good. What? Wait. I, I did my zip code. Keith Powers. Keith Powers. Okay, but Menon, okay. All right, in the 10028. I have no idea. You have no idea. All right, it's Keith Powers. Who is the comptroller? Who said that? Thank you. Uh, it, Lander. Yeah. I should plant oh, okay. tricks here. <laughs> yeah, okay. Who is, um, who represents us? I have us, a question for you. Who represent, I, I had to Google all this. Who, who represents us in the state assembly? Who, who said that? Alex Boris, right or wrong? All right. A member of the family said that's right. And um, we'll do one more. Uh, who's going to speak at Yom Kippur this year? <laughs> um, who is our sanitation commissioner? By the way, can I say, she has done an amazing job at snow removal. So, all right, so... My question is this, and there, there's a, a, a subcurrent of, of chutzpah and confession and chutzpah in this, that I think, um, I had to Google a lot, like I don't know who the public, anyone know who the public advocate is? Jemima. Yeah, all right, Jemima, thank well, Sam, you. This, this is sort of um, it's not fair. But I don't know any of this, but I know the inner politic of the state of Israel. Uh, and there was once an article I read um, uh, um, called The Seductive Reduction of Other People's Problems by Courtney Martin. And um, I don't know if anyone's read this um, article, but the thesis of it is it's much, Americans are far more likely to get involved in matters over the sea, right, and try to solve water issues in Darfur or um, women's rights in sub-Saharan Africa than they are what's going on 10 blocks away. And so my question to you, um, doctor, wrapping up 20 years at the Council of Foreign Relations, um, having just written a book on civic obligations, to what degree do you think our um, uh, the seduction of foreign policy is a foil for our unwillingness and ability to deal with that which is in our very neighborhood. The short answer is I don't, because we're not doing nearly, a much, nearly as much as we should be of either. 
Uh, we just had a midterm election, which is an aside, more than half of the eligible voters didn't vote in. But of those, the 45% or so of the eligible voters who did bother to vote voted. Uh, if a hand, if literally more than a handful voted on the basis of international issues, it's a lot. Uh, and one of the reasons we're seeing, I think, the Republican Party increasingly turn away from support for Ukraine is that that's what they're hearing uh, when they go out on the, on the stump. So, I mean, I think it's good that people are involved in the world. But again, I said, you know, there's a coin with two sides on it, rights and obligations. There's another coin with a national security side coin that one side is the world and one side is here at home. National security depends on both. It can't be either or. We've got to do things in the world, not simply because it's right, but out of self-interest. We learn, you know, whether it's through World War II or we just had a pandemic that started in, in, in China, or we see it with climate change. Uh, we see it with nuclear proliferation. We saw it on 9-11. International things get on the conveyor belt of globalization. So the idea that we, could, we have the luxury of ignoring the world and just focusing here at home is just dead wrong, dead wrong. The good news is we can focus on the world adequately and still have more than enough resources for focusing here at home. Just take one statistic. Uh, during the Cold War, I'll ask a question, Rabbi. Stump the rabbi. What, during the Cold War, what Ten. percentage of our GDP, what percentage of our GDP did you think we spent on defense? During, the, that, during Cold the Cold War. During the decades of the Cold War, what, what percentage of our America's GDP do you think we averaged spending on defense? I don't know. Uh, um, uh, no, I'm supposed to answer it. <laughs> I'm, I'm going with Bobby Bressman. Uh, two? You're going with two? Two percent. Your seats just got moved to the back. Uh, <laughs> probably upstairs, but so far away. Uh, it's probably over six percent. Somewhere between six and seven percent we average. And right now, we are spending closer to three and a half percent of our GDP on defense. My point being, we have shown in our modern history that we can spend a significant percentage of our, of our economy on the world, yet during the Cold War, we had a m massive strides here at home. My point is simply that what we spend over there doesn't, one, I th it's useful for what it does, but two, we can still do what we need here, to do here at home without spending less. It's a false choice. Ultimately, national security depends upon doing what's necessary out there and also what's necessary here. And the good news, if we spend our money intelligently, we can do both. The real question is not how much we spend, it's how we spend it. But I really think it's a false choice between doing what is right and necessary in the world and doing what is right, right and necessary here at home. Thank you, Dr. Haas. Um, uh, Doctor, you are so gracious to this community and the, uh, with your wisdom, with your time, with your leadership. Uh, so here, everyone should know, in the back channels of creating this event, we always say, well, what's the honorarium? And Dr. Haas a black, said- A black and white cookie? And Dr. Haas <laughs> said, all I ask is a joke. A Goldstein joke. And I only bring them out on Yom Kippur. But in your honor, 
So as many people know, synagogues have campaigns, and we have a Kol Nidre campaign here. But in the old school, you'd be called up to the Torah for Shlishi, for Ravi, for your Aliyah, and you'd be asked what your pledge is. And so Goldstein gets called up for Shlishi, and he's sitting there next to the Gabbai, the, the, the guy doing the Aliyot, how much would you like to give to the rabbi? And he says, $18,000 to the rabbi's fund. And the rabbi, uh, just ear to ear grin. And then he says, and the cantor, he says, $18,000 to the cantor's fund. And then he says, well, what about me, the gabbai? And he says, $180. At the end of services, the gabbai goes up to Goldstein and says, Mr. Goldstein, 18,000 for the cantor, another 18,000 for the rabbi, $180, he's crestfallen for me? And Goldstein turns to the gabbai and says, don't worry, your pledge I'll pay. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Haas. Thank you for listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more about our community, check out PASYN.org. See you in Shul. Hallelujah, Hallelujah.